0: H.G. Wells once wrote a short story called The Country of the Blind. I don't know if you've ever read uh, read it. I I read through it this week. It's just an interesting little story. He writes about this remote, inaccessible, very beautiful valley in Ecuador where due to some strange disease, everyone is blind. And after 15 generations of this blindness, there was no recollection of sight or color or even the importance of those things until one day there was a man from the outside, Wells says, who could see who literally fell into their midst. He had fallen off of some cliff and had managed to survive and stumbled into their remote village. And when he realized that everyone else was blind, he remembered that old adage that in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And so Wells writes that he tried on several occasions to explain to them the wonder of sight. Look, people, he said, there are things you do not understand in me. Once or twice, one or two of them attended to him and they sat with their faces downcast and their ears turned intelligently towards him and he did his best to tell them what it meant to be able to see. But they never believed him. In fact, they thought he was crazy. And then one day the man found himself falling in love with a girl who was there. And the girl's father, whose name was Jacob, went to talk to a doctor about him. And here's the conversation. The doctor said, I think I may say with reasonable certainty that in order to cure him completely, all that we need to do is just a simple, easy surgical procedure. Namely, to remove these irritant little bodies that he calls his eyes. And then he will be sane, the father asked. Oh, then he will be perfectly sane and quite an admirable citizen. Thank heaven for science, said the old father. Wells goes on to point out that the man would not be allowed to marry this young woman until he submitted to an operation that would blind him. So what would the man do? Well, he had fully meant to go to a lonely place where the meadows were beautiful with white flowers and there remain until the hour of his sacrifice should come. But as he walked along toward the meadow, he lifted up his eyes and Wells describes him seeing the morning, and the morning was like an angel in golden armor marching down the steep slopes. And it seemed to him that before this splendor, he and his blind world in the valley and his love and all that there was was no more than a pit of sin. And the man who could see escaped the country of the blind with his life. You know, in Scripture, John describes in his gospel, Jesus says, in him was life. And that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Some translators say has not understood it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. It is imagery that is significant in Scripture. It's imagery that is probably familiar to us. The light of God versus the darkness or the blindness of the world. Paul wrote to the Colossians, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And to the Ephesians, he wrote... For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. So if we can combine biblical imagery with the language from Wells' story, I think it would be reasonable for us to describe followers of Jesus Christ as people who have escaped the country of the blind. The difference between them and us, of course, is that initially we were blind as well. Rescued, perhaps, from the country of the blind. God opened our spiritual eyes, blind as they were, to the glorious light of his Son. And by faith, placing our trust and our confidence in Jesus... We find ourselves living in the light of his love and grace. You're looking pretty excited about that this morning. Living in the light of his grace. Living life in the way that we were created to live it. All to God's credit, we were living in darkness and we were blind to the truth of who God is and the life that he calls us to, whether... We realized it or not. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I think that's a song, isn't it? We've sung that from time to time. No singing, just the words, Dale, no worries. As Chad reminded us this morning, we've entered into the season on the church calendar that is known as, as Lent, that season that is in the springtime as the days begin to lengthen, designated for centuries on the church calendar as a time or a tradition of 40 days, minus the Sundays, to prepare us for the events of, of Holy Week specifically to focus upon the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. For those of you here who were on Wednesday night at our Ash Wednesday service, I, I loved Doug's emphasis upon preparing for something significant. Such great emphasis. That is what Lent is all about, preparing for something that is really big, really important and special. The Catholic Encyclopedia says this. The real aim of Lent is, above all else, to prepare for the celebration of the death and resurrection of Christ. The better the preparation, the more effective the celebration will be. And that's true. We understand, don't we, the importance of preparation? I'm working with several young couples right now they're preparing to be married. And we're walking through some things that that they are studying and and we're discussing and, and, and wrestling with. Preparing for marriage. Students prepare for finals, or at least we hope they do. We prepare for the Advent season. We prepare for certain things that are a part of our lives Are we willing to prepare to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus? There is nothing in the life of the follower of Christ that is more important to mark on our calendars and to prepare to remember, to celebrate. Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday. Do we prepare for that? Does that have a sense of importance? You know, how often over the years on Communion Sundays do we hear again and again those words of Jesus? Do this and remember me. The bread and the cup. They're reminders to us of his sacrifice. Jesus did not want his followers to forget what he came to earth for. And I would just throw this out to you. We dare not blow through Holy Week like it is any other and then party on Easter. Party on Easter is good. But the party is going to be even better if we prepare ourselves and remember what it took in the life of Jesus for us to arrive at Resurrection Sunday. Let's be honest. The resurrection was the easiest part of Jesus' life. The hard work is what led up to that. It's important for us as God's people to remember that, to mark that, to prepare for that, to celebrate that. And so within the church tradition, Lent is viewed as a time for personal reflection, for confession, for meditation upon the scriptures and the truths of Christ, and his atoning work for us on the cross for our salvation. Lent is typically a season where where our personal worship as followers of Jesus perhaps has a a bit more of a, a somber tone than at other times of the year, except for Sundays, Sundays are not included in the count. You know, if you, uh, if you start at Ash Wednesday and you count all, your, all the way to, to what is known as Holy or Great Saturday before Resurrection Sunday, you'll find that there's more than 40 days there. It's because the Sundays are taken out. The Sundays in church tradition have always been seen as a celebration of the resurrection. and So that is why they are technically the Sundays in Lent and not the Sundays of Lent. And so we're going to start our Lenten celebration today on this first Sunday in Lent. Celebration of Christ, who he is, what he is in our lives, by reading what is probably a very familiar Lenten text. And, and we're going to read this, and your response is going to be something like, isn't this a little bit backwards? And if that's how you feel, you're right. It is backwards. But let's stand and read together. From Matthew 21. See if this uh, doesn't sound familiar to you. Together, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. The whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him, the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise? My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Familiar text? So, why read the traditional Palm Sunday six weeks early? It's a good question. Well, the idea came to me a, a few weeks back as I was, as I was thinking about this, this familiar story that we have just read. It's a jubilant scene. According to Matthew, as you heard, there's a large crowd on the road that's going into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, by the way, is a fairly significant city in Israel's history. There are people in this crowd that are both in front of and behind Jesus who's riding on a donkey and they're laying their coats and their palm branches on the road and that is an act of of homage to royalty. We see that in the Old Testament in some of the accounts of kings. And they're shouting things like, Son of David! fairly significant figure in Judah's past. Something about the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Which is a Hebrew expression meaning save. And it it sort of evolved into an exclamation of, of praise. So this is quite a scene. This is This is huge. And then we read these words. Heather, can we put those words back up on the screen? When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And they asked, Who is this? Turn to your neighbor and ask him. Why did the people of Jerusalem ask that question? What do you think? Just speculate together a bit. Why did they ask that question? Okay, we ready? Did your neighbor just show signs of brilliance? What do you think? Why does this, why does this question, why is it recorded here in Matthew? White? Why did the people verbalize this question? Who is this? Okay, okay, good, good, excellent. Why are we doing this? It's it's quite a show. It's quite a processional going on here. Unless the folks in Jerusalem weren't all that clear about who he was. Because he didn't hang out in Jerusalem a whole lot until that final week. A little speculation. Not unreasonable at all. Yeah, yeah. These, these These were Jews. These were people who were steeped in the scriptures since they were young. Yeah. What else? Okay, okay, yeah. So, kind of picking up a little bit on what on what Catherine said. Why why are we doing this? You know what? Yes, quite large, I'm sure. Yeah, that 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 commoner kind of a person that that Dixie was referring to may have been some of that. May have been some of that. Yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of of possibilities that there's just there's a whole lot that is is going on here. I think there are some. Some cultural dynamics at work, and, and you have certainly hit on those if if you study the Gospels they they don't locate Jesus in Jerusalem very much at all compared to where he spent so much of his time that doesn 't mean that he wasn 't in Jerusalem, and it certainly doesn't mean that that they didn 't know of Jesus in jerusalem but but comparatively he is not in Jerusalem a whole lot it, and it almost you almost get the sense that that he avoids Jerusalem. And if he did, it's probably because he knew that 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 was his final destination on earth in terms of where he would be when he became a sacrifice for lost humanity. And so, perhaps until the time came for him to enter and journey, begin his journey to the cross, um, he... He did not spend significant time there. And John, John's gospel records animosity from the religious leaders towards him because of his teaching, because of his action, his, his challenges to them, the, the religious establishment, as, as Diane referenced. And, and also, there's, there is this processional that, that brought Jesus into the city. And, and truth be told, it was probably a ragtag processional at best it was it was indeed coming into the city that historically marked the location of the throne for the kings of Judah but but the messages are are just conflicting as, as some of you were on to in your your observations shouts of Hosanna to the son of David that that is a very kingly shout but he was riding on on a donkey, which was hardly a royal steed, uh, Jesus was he was surrounded by the commoners, the ragtag folks of society. It was the same kind of, of commoners, same kind of ragtag folks that he had spent his last three years of ministry with, perhaps longer. So rather than rather than a royal entourage with bystanders looking on, the bystanders are the entourage. The common folks are, are, are escorting this man towards the king's throne. And it's interesting, when the people asked the question, the answer given was that Jesus was a prophet from Nazareth. That is who many of them knew him to be. And truth be told, that was probably not a real big selling point because the city of Nazareth was small. It was it was very insignificant in terms of any kind of agriculture or economy that was important in that day. <clears throat> there were no trade routes as far as we know. And, and during Jesus' lifetime, archaeologists believe that the, the, the population of Nazareth probably wasn't any larger than about 500 people. So it's a small place. Some commentators say it was a backwater town. And there is no prophecy in the Old Testament of a king coming from Nazareth. So, So what kind of a king is going to come from Nazareth? And anything good come from Nazareth? It's this scene of mixed messages and confusion <clears throat> that, that gave birth to this Lenten sermon series. It probably sounds a little crazy. And, and I hope you'll, you'll bear with me for a little bit. But let me explain. As I, as I read this story again and again, I thought, you know... There, is, there are two crowds here. There is a crowd that is with Jesus, and there is a crowd without Jesus. Kind of a, a spiritual analogy, if you would go with me in that direction for just a moment. Spiritual analogy to the world in which we live there are those who who join with Jesus, and there are those without Jesus in the world. Now, now, the crowd with Jesus, at least in Matthew's story, is convinced that he is important, and it would appear that they are intent on making him king. But as Catherine observed, what kind of a king is? Do they expect him to be? Quite likely they were envisioning a political king, one who would deliver them from the oppression of the Romans, exalt them to the top of the world's people where, where they believed they rightly belonged. And they want him to be a king, as they understand kings. They are pushing for him to be a king in the vein of how they think kings should live their lives. Ruling over them from the throne in Jerusalem and providing for them in a way that enhances their lives with security and comforts. That would be a good king. They want a good king. They want someone who's going to do what is best for them and who will maximize their personal freedom and the lives that they live on this earth. Some of you are getting a little suspicious at this point. The crowd inside of Jerusalem, well, they're looking out there at this ragtag bunch of people whose actions and words are confusing. They don't seem to measure up. And then you, you add that to the history that they have with prophets. And at least for those who are familiar with so much of Israel's history, they're pretty sure that a prophet is not what they need. Prophets were always coming in with, thus saith the Lord and haranguing the way that they lived and telling them that God did not approve that they were worshiping falsely, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was so often the role of, of the prophet. Certainly the prophet spoke words of comfort and love and promise and assurance as well. But prophets also said hard, in, uncomfortable Convicting sorts of things. Add to that, that for the most part, the folks in Jerusalem had made peace with the Romans. For the most part. They didn't like the Romans, but they made peace with them. And they had a puppet king in the rather short, small dynasty of the Herods, the Tetrarchs. He was approved by the Romans. He didn't really care a hoot about his own people. But as long as his people didn't misbehave, then Herod's life was reasonably certain and reasonably comfortable and the Romans didn't interfere and there was this illusion of of peace and settledness. And to be quite honest with you, one of the things that I read into that question are the folks in Jerusalem looking over their shoulders, wondering if the Roman guards who are present in the city are aware of what's coming down the road. Because it may not result in a pleasant experience. Challenge to the Roman Empire. Word of a king. Rumor of this person ascending to the throne was not well received by the Roman Caesars. Not ever. So, what is the point to all of this, right? That's what you're sitting there wondering. Finally, here's what I want you to take with you this morning as we begin to move through this Lenten season and share in these Lenten Sundays together. We're going to do it with a focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we want to do. We want to prepare for that, that week of His suffering and His death and His resurrection. And as our focus is upon Him and His suffering for a lost and, and broken world, those of us who claim to be His followers, those who who would affirm that Jesus is indeed a king, we read those words and we know, yes, he is a king. And we know that he needs to be king over the lives of those who don't know him. I would suggest to you that we need to be informed by this story and some of the distinctives, I think, that are in it that that reveal more about Jesus to us. And... We need to take to truth, uh, take that truth deep into our hearts. Allow the story of who Jesus shows himself to be from the onset, consistent with who he has shown himself to be through stories in the Gospels, as we live out our belief in Jesus as King. Here's what I mean. We're going to celebrate on Palm Sunday the tradition of the church, the arrival of the King. When we arrive at Palm Sunday, my prayer is that we will have a better understanding of what it means that Jesus is King. Because what we may find is that this, this common theme that we have of humanity. Tends to make of Jesus something that he is not. And it could be that we are a part of that crowd following along, shouting and proclaiming and yay Jesus and go God because in our minds there is a sense in which Jesus is going to rescue us from the hardships of life and exalt us to where we deserve to be. Jesus didn't do that. What kind of a king will you celebrate on Palm Sunday? Could be that we find ourselves with the crowd behind the walls of Jerusalem. Not altogether certain this is a good idea. Having a sense that, you know, if word gets out about this Jesus character and we're not all convinced that he really is who folks are saying he is, that could make... Life, a little challenging. And so my question again would be, who is Jesus to you? And what kind of a king will you be celebrating him to be? And here's the other thought that went through my mind, and with this I promise I'll I'll close you know, the folks who are outside of Jerusalem, they are traveling with Jesus and they are excited about Jesus, probably some for the right motives, probably most of them for the wrong motives, excited about Jesus, eager to get him to Jerusalem, to get him on that throne and to proclaiming as king. And the folks in Jerusalem, well, from the perspective of the outsiders, the folks in Jerusalem need, to, they need Jesus. They, they need this king. As followers of Jesus, don't we go through our lives saying that people need Jesus? I believe Jesus is king. And I believe everybody who doesn't know him and proclaim His as, as, as king, they, they need to know him. But when I talk about Jesus, when you talk about Jesus, when we live for Jesus, what do they see in our lives? What kind of a king is Jesus when they look at our lives? What sort of conclusions do they draw about Jesus when they hear us and when they see us? So we're going to look at what I think are some non-negotiable truths about who Jesus is, non-negotiable for his followers and, and we will face those questions of who do I understand Jesus to be and, and is that understanding really true with Scripture and, and, and what does my life say about these truths that we believe so that when we arrive on Palm Sunday, we indeed will celebrate to the best of our ability this glorious King, Jesus. Amen.